Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 20th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 30 of our series, The Protocols of Satan. It is subtitled, Off with the Heads. This is about the patterns in history. Our last installment in these Protocols of Satan was subtitled Constitutional Vanity, and we endeavored to show that regardless of the imagined soundness of the document, that the United States Constitution was destined to be undermined on the part of private and commercial interests. One of the basic purposes of the document in the first place was to ensure that such private commercial interests would have free reign to operate in every state. And some of the most significant acts of early presidents were in defense of private commercial interests at the general public expense. So, wonder about that alone. The one important point we hope to have made in our last presentation was in relation to the statement in the Protocols that the rights of the people were fictitious. And that is indeed the case here in America as well as in Europe. When the Bill of Rights was introduced, it was not a part of the original Constitution. Rather, it was only amended to the Constitution by the first Congress. What Congress gives, Congress can ultimately take away. And our perceived rights have been successfully limited by Congress at diverse times. So they are not really rights at all. Rather than having been an afterthought approved by the Congress, such rights, at the very least, should have been an intrinsic part of the original document which created the Congress, and it was not. The difference may seem trivial, but it is actually quite important. In the conclusion of our last discussion, we presented a story from former U.S. Congressman and Tennessee war hero, Davy Crockett, which showed the general attitudes of his own fellow politicians, which had undermined many constitutional principles, and how their attitudes contrasted to the steadfast understanding of one particular genteel southern farmer, Horatio Bunce. We thought the story was a perfect example of how the Constitution, which is basically a contract for trade and mutual defense between the various states, utterly failed to preserve liberty to the people and instead even helped to sell them into debt servitude. In any event, the American Revolution differed from the contemporary and later revolutions of Europe in one key aspect. There was no class warfare among those who participated. The poor did not attack the wealthy, and property rights were generally respected among all classes. Neither did it seek to overthrow the religious order of the people. Even though it upheld some of the ideals of liberalism, the French Revolution was far more nefarious in its purpose. That is the topic of our discussion this evening. Here, without further delay, we shall once again read the latest portion from Protocol Number 3. 
from the text of Boris Brassall's publication of the Protocols in World Revolution. And we're up to the portion, we're discussing the portion where the Protocols boast that under our guidance the people have exterminated aristocracy, which was their natural protector and guardian, for its own interests are inseparably connected with the well-being of the people. Now, however, with the destruction of this aristocracy, the masses have fallen under the power of the profiteers and cunning upstarts who have settled on the workers as a merciless burden. We did not see this in the American Revolution, although there was a more discreet endeavor to eliminate the titles and privileges of the aristocracy. The aristocrats themselves were left unharmed. But if we had to choose a starting point, revealing the truth of this boast in the Protocols, it would have to be even earlier, in 17th century England. We read the following concerning Cromwell and the Jews from the Nameless War by Captain A.H.M. Ramsey. To this point in his account of the Jews in England, he had been quoting from Disraeli, and then complains that even Benjamin Disraeli was not revealing enough, or I'm sorry, perhaps I should be referring to his father, was not revealing enough of the Jewish hand manipulating the English politics of the period. So he abandons Disraeli and resorts to other Jewish sources. And he says, to do this we must turn to such other works as the Jewish Encyclopedia, Sombart's work, The Jews and Modern Capitalism, and others. From these we learn that Cromwell, the chief figure of the revolution, the English Revolution, was in close contact with the powerful Jew financiers in Holland, and was in fact paid large sums of money by Manasseh ben Israel, while Fernandez Carvajal, the quote-unquote great Jew, as he was called, was the chief contractor of the new model army. And he continues, and he says, In the Jews in England, we read that in 1643, there was brought a large contingent of Jews to England. Their rallying point was the house of the Portuguese ambassador de Souza, a Morano, or secret Jew. Prominent among them was Fernandez Carvajal, a great financier and army contractor. And finishing his quote from the Jews of England, he goes on to say that in January of the previous year, the attempted arrest of the five members had set in violent motion the armed gangs of operatives. Already mentioned, we haven't mentioned them here, of course, already mentioned from the city, from London. Revolutionary pamphlets were broadcasted on this occasion, as Disraeli tells us, going back to Disraeli, bearing the ominous insurrectionary cry of, To your tents, O Israel. Shortly after this, the king and the royal family left the palace of Whitehall. The five members with armed mobs, the five members of that Jewish cabal, with armed mobs and banners accompanying them, were given a triumphal return to Westminster. The stage was now set for the advent of Carvajal and his Jews, and the rise of their creature Cromwell. And, unfortunately, Ramsey also blindly accepted the misidentification of the Jews with ancient Israel. But then Captain Ramsey 
presents the contents of two letters which he reports were preserved in a German book. Letters between Oliver Cromwell and a Jew named Ebenezer Perez. The first one being from Cromwell, written on June 16, 1647. In return for financial support, we'll advocate admission of Jews to England. This, however, impossible while Charles is living. Charles cannot be executed without trial, adequate grounds for which do not at present exist. Therefore advise that Charles be assassinated, but will have nothing to do with arrangements for procuring an assassin, though willing to help in his escape, the escape of the assassin. In reply was dispatched the following letter to Cromwell on the same day, July, I'm sorry, on July 12th, almost a month later, 1647. My memory's failing me. We'll grant financial aid as soon as Charles is removed and the Jews admitted. Assassination is too dangerous. Charles shall be given opportunity to escape. His recapture will make trial and execution possible. The support will be liberal, but useless to discuss terms until the trial commences the anticipated trial of Charles, which these Jews had hoped to see. The English Revolution and the fate of King Charles I would seemingly be a type or warning for what was to come to Europe in the centuries to come. When we examine the French and Bolshevik revolutions, a clear pattern develops. Whenever the Jews come to power, the heads begin to roll. From the patterns of history, we should know who the culprits are, because they have worked from basically the same playbook over and again. No good cook would want to spoil a successful recipe. While the following comments are rather late for this particular boast of the Protocols, on page 114 of his book, The Protocols and World Revolution, Boris Brassall gives two citations which reflect this attitude of the protocols in protocol number three in communist Jewish literature. The first is from the Red Gazette, the issue of August 31st, 1918, published by the Petrograd Soviet of the Workmen's and Soldiers' Deputies, which was presided over by the Jew Applebaum, who was going by the name of Zinoviev in those days. It said, the interests of the revolution require the physical annihilation of the bourgeois class. It is time for us to start. And start they did, but that won't be a topic of tonight's discussion. The second is from a statement by Leon Trotsky, made at the International Communist Congress in Moscow in March 1919. It was quoted by the New York Evening Sun for its issue of March 18th that year, where he is recorded as having said that blood and mercilessness must be our slogans. And of course, this is five months after the October Revolution. Five months. I'm sorry. Two years almost. Seventeen months after the October Revolution. October 1917. And the Bolsheviks were still fighting for complete control of Russian territory.
We will discuss how these sentiments were put into effect in Bolshevik Russia shortly, probably next week. However, first we will discuss how this same thing had happened during the much earlier French Revolution. And even though it is difficult to pin the blame directly onto the Jews, it can be attributed to the secret societies and to their agents, the Jacobins, through whom the Jews had been operating. And it also came in company with both the emancipation of the Jews in France and the attempted imposition of a virtually godless society for which the Jews had striven everywhere ever since their emancipation. It's the first thing they did when they took over Russia. They closed the churches. They persecuted the priests. It is difficult to reckon just where to start when considering the French Revolution in comparison to the English and then the Bolshevik and the objectives of the protocols. The Jews had their grip on England and they would have it on France as well, even though it was not nearly as easy to take over a Roman Catholic nation than it had been to deceive the Puritans. In 1787 there was an Edict of Toleration issued on behalf of Calvinists in France. But it was not the first, which had been issued by King Henry IV in 1598, but that was revoked by Louis XIV in 1685. Louis XIV had prohibited in all of the lands and territories under his authority the public exercise of any religion other than the Catholic religion, with the hope of bringing around his people to the desirable unity of the same worship. So Calvinists, as well as other Protestants, practiced their faith privately, while Jews had a different set of privileges. In 1787, Calvinists alone were granted civil rights, including the right to practice their religion, but still had no political rights. However, this was only the beginning of agitation. Quoting from an article found at the section on the French Revolution at the Center for History and New Media, which seems to have been based on material from the book The French Revolution and Human Rights, A Brief Documentary History, translated, edited, and with an introduction by Lynn Hunt, in 1789, 40,000 Jews lived in France, most of them in the eastern provinces of Alsace and Lorraine. In some respects, they were better treated than Calvinists under the laws of the monarchy. Jews could legally practice their religion, though their other activities were severely restricted, as were the Calvinists. They had no civil or political rights, neither did the Calvinists, except the right to be judged by their own separate courts, so they had a greater advantage than the Calvinists. And they faced pervasive local prejudice, the major Jewish communities in the city of Bordeaux in the southwest and the regions of Alsace and Lorraine in the east essentially constituted separate nations, quote-unquote, within the French nation, and nations separate from each other since their status differed in many ways. In 1787 and 1788, the Royal Society of Arts and Sciences 
of the city of Metz in eastern France set up an essay competition on the question, are there means for making the Jews happier and more useful in France? Of course, our thought would be to convert them into fertilizer. Its 2,000 Jews gave Metz the single, la- single largest Jewish population in the East. Among the three winners declared in 1788 was a Jew named, a Polish Jew named Zalkind Horwitz. We are not going to present the insipid list of ways to make Jews happy and useful submitted by this Polish Jew. But it was basically an appeal to give Jews equal rights as citizens and contained a list of excuses as to why Jews should have political and civic rights in France. It is only notable that such an endeavor would be initiated in a chapter of the Royal Society of Arts and Sciences. In our series of presentations on the Jews in medieval Europe, we had hoped to establish that the academies of science in Britain and in France had their origins in the lodges of speculative masonry and shared a common fascination with the Jewish Kabbalah that many early alchemists and astronomers or astrologers throughout Europe had also shared. The Kabbalah was the avenue by which the Jews eventually controlled both the lodges of speculative Freemasonry and the science academies that evolved from them. Another article at the Center for History and New Media is titled Petition of the Jews of Paris, Alsace and Lorraine to the National Assembly. It was made on January 28, 1790, and it says in part, that when the Jews of Paris and the Eastern Provinces presented their case to the National Assembly, they leaned heavily on the precedent of granting full rights to the Protestants and on the language of human rights philosophy. They insisted that the Jews should be treated no differently from anyone else and refuted one by one all the customary prejudicial arguments used against the Jews. Their petition, skipping ahead a little, their petition shows the power of the language of rights. All men, quote-unquote, all men of whatever religion should all equally have the title and the rights of citizen. Despite the pleas of the Jews, the assembly held off on granting them full political rights until September of 1991. And of course, a new French Constitution was also coming in at that very time. On September 27, 1791, there was proposed a motion titled Admission of Jews to Rights of Citizenship. A third article from our same source tells us that after several tumultuous discussions about the Jewish communities still excluded from political rights, the National Assembly finally voted to regularize the situation of all the different Jewish communities on September 27, 1791. Adrien Jean-Francois Duport, a deputy of the nobility of Paris, proposed the motion. The deputy shouted down those who attempted to speak against it, and it quickly passed. A subsequent amendment indicated that swearing the civic oath implied a renunciation of 
previous Jewish privileges, that is, the right to an autonomous community ruled by its own members according to its own customs. The law required Jews to be individuals, just like everyone else in France. And I really didn't include it in in this presentation this evening. I didn't intend to. But if we examine this plea made by this Polish Jews, Alkan Horowitz, it seems that some Jews weren't exactly happy being under the thumbs of their rabbis all the time. So they sought emancipation from their own rabbis, as well as the right to engage in politics in the white Christian nation, right? Here is a a translation of Duport's motion, and this Duport is certainly a character. He said, I have one very short observation to make to the assembly. Now, Duport is supposedly a Frenchman, I'll say supposedly. He's ostensibly a Frenchman. I have one very short observation to make to the assembly, which appears to be of the highest importance, and which demands all its attention. You have regulated by the Constitution, sirs, the qualities deemed necessary to become a French citizen, and an active citizen, that sufficed, I believe, to regulate all incidental questions that could have been raised in the assembly relative to certain professions, to certain persons. But there is a decree of adjournment that seems to strike a blow at these general rights. I speak of the Jews. To decide the question that concerns them, it suffices to lift the decree of adjournment that you have rendered and which seems to suspend the question in their regard that was done a year beforehand. Thus, if you had not rendered a decree of adjournment on the question of the Jews, it would not have been necessary to do anything for having declared by your constitution how all peoples of the earth could become French citizens and how all French citizens could become active citizens, there would have been no difficulty on this subject. I ask, therefore, that the decree of adjournment be revoked and that it be declared relative to the Jews that they will be able to become active citizens like all the peoples of the world by fulfilling the conditions prescribed by the Constitution. I believe that freedom of worship no longer permits any distinction to be made between the political rights of citizens on the basis of their beliefs, and I believe equally that the Jews cannot be the only exceptions to the enjoyment of these rights when pagans, Turks, Muslims, Chinese even, men of all sects, in short, are admitted to these rights. Now we know what's wrong with France, and it happened a few hundred years ago. Adrien Jean-Francois Duport was a Jacobin and a Freemason. Here we see that he also had no care for the racial integrity of France, but advocated a France open to people of all religions and all races. And from that perspective, he argued on behalf of the Jew. We lament France today, but the wicked ideals that have destroyed it have been operating there for a long time. According to Wikipedia, Duport was also a follower of mesmerism, and a Freemason initiated into the lodge of the Friends of Paris. Here is a brief biography from the 1911 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica.
Adrian Duport, he lived a short life, only 49 years old, I think, from 1759 to 1798. That's 39 years old. Adrien Duport, a French politician, was born in Paris. He became an influential advocate in the Parliament, becoming prominent in opposition to the ministers Cologne and Lomeny de Brienne. Elected in 1789 to the States Generals by the nobles of Paris, he soon revealed a remarkable eloquence. A learned jurist, he contributed during the Constituent Assembly to the organization of the Judiciary of France. They started studying young in those days. His report of the 29th of March, 1790, is especially notable. In it, he advocated trial by jury, but he was unable to obtain the jury system in civil cases. Duport had formed with Bamal and Alexandre de la Math that might be Bamave, a group known as the Triumvirate, which was popular at first, but after the flight of the king to Varennes, Duport sought to defend him as member of the commission charged to question the king. He tried to excuse him, and on the 14th of July, 1791, he opposed the formal accusation. He was thus led to separate himself from the Jacobins and to join the Fulant party. After the Constituent Assembly, he became president of the Criminal Tribunal of Paris, but was arrested during the insurrection of the 10th of August, 1792. He escaped, thanks probably to the complicity of Danton, returned to France after the 9th of Thermidor, of the year two, and of course the revolutionaries created their own sort of strange calendar. He left it in exile again after the Republican coup d'etat in the 18th of the month, Fructidor, of the year five, and died in Appenzell in Switzerland in 1798. A more recent Encyclopedia Britannica article gives a more radical view of Duport's term in a legislature, as this motion for the emancipation of the Jews was proposed, where it says in part that Duport was elected for the nobility of the Estates General of 1789. On June 25th, he and 46 other representatives of the nobility joined the unprivileged Third Estate, which had already declared itself a revolutionary national assembly. As one of the Assembly's most brilliant lawyers, Duport played a major role in creating the judicial machinery that supplanted the legal system of the ancient regime, meaning the hereditary kings. So it is important to note that the man who proposed the motion for the emancipation of the Jews in France, and whose party violently ensured its passage, was a Freemason and a Jacobin, of the party of Robespierre, and he was in their favor until over a year later. Here we will present a segment of Nesta, a long segment actually, of Nesta Webster's World Revolution. The Plot Against Civilization. While she does not mention the Jews in this section, 
and she does not mention Duport at all, she nevertheless explains the Jacobin role in the revolution, the reign of terror, and shows their connections to the infamous Illuminati. But her excellent portrayal of Robespierre as a state socialist, as a proto-Marxist years before Marx, and therefore we see that the the revelation that he had the same objectives that the Marxists and the Bolsheviks carried everywhere after the Jews finally gained their political rights is the most significant indication of the true instigators of the revolution in France, of the identity of the true instigators of the revolution in France. I'm sorry, I'm still typing. Beginning from page... 36 in chapter 2 of Nesta Webster's book. It was not, however, until after the overthrow of the monarchy on the 10th of August that the work of demolition began on the vast scale planned by Weishaupt. The reference is to Adam Weishaupt, of course, the Bavarian founder of the Illuminati and former Jesuit priest. The 10th of August, the overthrow of the monarchy, is a reference to the Declaration of the Republic in 1792. From this moment, the role of Illuminism can be clearly traced through the succeeding phases of the Revolution. Thus, it is from the 10th of August onwards that we find the tricolor, Banner of the Usurper, replaced by the red flag of the social revolution, whilst the cry of Long live our King of Orleans gives way to the Masonic watchword Liberty, Equality, Fraternity. During the massacres in the prisons that followed in September, the assassins were observed to make Masonic signs to the victims and to spare those who knew how to reply. Amongst those not spared was the Abbe Lefranc, who had published a pamphlet unveiling the designs of Freemasonry at the beginning of the Revolution. The proclamation issued by the Convention in December summoning the proletariats of Europe to rise in revolt against all ordered government was the first trumpet call to world revolution, and it was the failure to respond to this appeal that forced the Jacobins into a national attitude they never intended to assume. They were internationalists, just like the Bolsheviks, and just like we had seen Duport. In November 1793, the campaign against religion inaugurated by the massacre of the priest in September 1792, was carried out all over France. In the cemeteries, the cherished motto of the Illuminati, death is an eternal sleep, death is an eternal sleep, I'm sorry, was posted up by the order of the Illuminatus Anaxagoras Chalmé, Anaxagoras being his first name, and Nesta Webster puts it in quotes, and we'll explain that momentarily. The feasts of reason celebrated in the churches of Paris were the mere corollary to Weishaupt's teaching that reason should be the only code of man. And Robeson 
states that the actual ceremonies which took place when the women of easy morals were enthroned as goddesses were modeled on Weishaupt's plan of an erotarion after the Greek word eros which is lustful love I can't really call it love or festival in honor of the god of love Concerning this Eroterion, Nesta Webster has a footnote that the idea seems to have been long current in Germany. In 1751, an impious work dedicated to Frederick II the Great published as a frontispiece the scene of the adoration of a prostitute, which was destined to be realized on the 20th of Brahmaire, 1793, on the altar of the Notre Dame of Paris, quoting the book The Secret Societies by Deschamps. The reference to Robeson refers to the Scottish clergyman who also wrote books on the Masonic and secret societies and their conspiracies in Europe. I don't offhand have the name of his major work in my head. When next Webster mentioned Anaxagoras Chalmay, she put his first name in quotations. When we discussed the early life of Martin Luther, here some months ago, probably many months ago already, one aspect among the humanists of Luther's time, which we had taken note of, was that they despised their German names, and that they adopted Latin or Greek names instead. They were all very immoral men who adopted every licentious practice they could find in classical literature, using the literature to justify every perversion. It is no surprise to see the same caliber of men among the French revolutionaries. Continuing with Webster from page 37, first we must note that where Weishaupt speaks of the mercantile tribe in reference to France, it can only be to a class of people and not really to Jews alone. There hardly seem to have been sufficient Jews in France at this time for them to have comprised the entire class of merchants. So she goes on to say, it was likewise to Weishaupt's declamations against the mercantile tribe that the devastation of the manufacturing towns of France and the ruin of her merchants can be traced, whilst the campaign against education formed a further part of the scheme for destroying civilization. The terrorists in burning down the libraries and guillotining Lavoisiere on the plea that the Republic has no need of chemists, were simply putting into practice Weishaupt's theory that the sciences were children of necessity, the complicated needs of a state contrary to nature, the inventions of vain and empty brains. And Antoine Laurent de la Vassière was a French nobleman and chemist. He was executed on May 8, 1794. Nesta Webster goes on to write that the system of persecution against men of talents was organized, a contemporary declared, organized as well as the whole system of the terror by the Illuminati and carried out by men who had accepted the guiding principle of the sect. For it was Weishaupt's favorite maxim 
the end justifies the means that we find again in the mouths of the Jacobins under the form of the saying, everything is permitted to anyone who acts in the direction of the revolution. The reign of terror was the logical outcome of this premise. But this does not imply that all the terrorists were Illuminati, that is to say, conscious adepts of Weishaupt. It is true that, as we have seen, all were Freemasons at the beginning of the revolution. But it is probable that few were initiated into the inner mysteries of the order. The art of Illuminism lay in enlisting dupes as well as adepts, and by encouraging the dreams of honest visionaries or the schemes of fanatics, by flattering the vanity of ambitious egoists, by working on unbalanced brains, or by playing on such passions as greed of gold or power, to make men of totally divergent aims serve the secret purpose of the sect. Indeed, amongst all the revolutionary leaders, one man alone stands out as a pure Illuminatus, the Prussian baron Anacarsis Klutz. And Anacarsis was another humanist clown with a Greek first name. In the utterances of Klutz, we find the doctrines of Weishaupt expressed with absolute fidelity. Thus, in his Universal Republic, the scheme of Weishaupt for welding the whole human race into one good and happy family, as we've seen in the speech of Drumont and his designs for France. The scheme of Weishaupt for welding the whole human race into one good and happy family is set forth at length. One common interest, one mind, one nation, cries Anacarsis. Do you wish, he asks again, to exterminate all tyrants at a blow? Declare then authentically that sovereignty consists in the common patriotism and solidarity of the totality of men, of the one and only nation. The universe will form one state the state of united individuals, the immutable empire of the great Germany, the universal republic. Or again, he says, when the Tower of London falls, like the Tower of Paris, it will be all over with tyrants, all the people forming only one nation, all the trades forming only one trade, all interests forming only one interest, etc., and, of course, that's the mantra of communists everywhere. We saw that in New Orleans last week. It was Klutz, moreover, who played the most active part in the campaign against religion. Was it not he who had invented the word to septemberize, regretting that they had not septemberized more priests in the prisons, and who openly declared himself as the personal enemy of Jesus Christ. The fact that he never revealed himself to be an Illuminatus and never referred to Weishaupt was in strict accordance with the rule of the order, which we shall find adhered to by every adept in turn. The Illuminati, Professor Renner had declared before the Bavarian Court of Inquiry, 
Fear nothing so much as being recognized under this name. And frightful punishment was attached to the betrayal of the secret. It is thus that historians, unaware of the sources whence Klutz drew his theories, or anxious to conceal the role of Illuminism in the revolutionary movement, describe him as an amiable eccentric of no importance. In reality, Klutz was one of the most important figures of the whole revolution, if viewed from a modern standpoint, for it was he alone, all of all his day, who embodied the spirit of anti-patriotism and internationalism which, defeated in France of 1793, finally secured triumph on the ruins of the Russian Empire of 1917. It was Klutz's internationalism that ended by antagonizing Robespierre. When, at the Jacobin Club, the Prussian baron declared that his heart was French and sans culotte, sans culotte means without breeches, meaning common or lower class. But at the same time, he proposed that as soon as the French army came in sight of the Austrian and Prussian soldiers, they should, instead of attacking the enemy, throw down their own arms and advance towards them dancing in a friendly manner. Anacarsis had some unseemly fantasies. Robespierre, who was not without a certain penetration in his hatreds, acidly apostrophized him, saying that he distrusted all these foreigners who pretended to be more patriotic than the French themselves, that he suspected the good faith of the so-called of a so-called sans culotte who had an income of a hundred thousand livres. And he ended by sending Klutz and his fellow atheists, Hebert, Chaumet, Ronsin, and Vincent, to the scaffold. Was Robespierre, then, not an Illuminatus? He was a Freemason, and Prince Kropotkin definitely states that he belonged to one of the lodges of the Illuminati, founded by Weishaupt. But contemporaries declare that he had not been fully initiated and acted as the tool rather than as the agent of the conspiracy. (coughs) Moreover, Robespierre was the disciple not only of Weishaupt but also of Rousseau and under the inspiration of Rousseau's social contract had elaborated a scheme of his own which held none of the aimless destructiveness of the Illuminati. Thus, Robespierre clearly recognized the necessity for the vast social revolution indicated by Weishaupt. But while Weishaupt fixed his eye on the explosion and smiled at the thought of universal conflagration, Robespierre regarded anarchy simply as a means to an end, the reconstruction of society according to the plan he had evolved with the cooperation of Louis-Antoine Léon de Saint-Just, which was simply an embryonic form of the system later known as state socialism. This statement will, of course, be challenged by socialists, who have always, for reasons I, meaning Nesta Webster, shall show later, 
denied the Robespierrean origin of their doctrines. It is true, of course, that the word socialism was not invented until some 40 years later, but it would be absurd by means of such a quibble to disassociate socialism from its earliest exponents. Monsieur Allard is no doubt perfectly right in saying that Robespierre's Declaration of the Rights of Man contains all the essentials of French socialism founded on the principles of 1789 and such as Louis Blanc had popularized in 1848. It is for having proposed these socialistic articles. It is for having proposed this charter for socialism and not for having vaguely declaimed against the rich and sounded the praises of mediocrity, that Robespierre, after his death, as much in our own century as in the time of Babouf, which was about the same time as Louis Blanc, Babouf took part in the Revolution of 1848, a major part, became the prophet of many of those amongst us who dreamt of a social renovation, and he remained so until the period when German influence made French socialists temporarily forget the French origins of their doctrines. Citing Allard's Political History of the French Revolution and his Studies and Lessons on the French Revolution, two different books, Robespierre may indeed, in the language of socialism, be described as more advanced than his French successors of the early 19th century, for he anticipated the Marxian theory of class war which was not again to find acceptance in France until adopted by the guestists and the syndicalists at the very end of the century, the end of the 19th century. Robespierre's cherished maxim, the rich man is the enemy of the sans-culotte, contains the whole spirit of the class war. We have, in fact, only to transpose the phrases current in 1793, into their modern equivalents to recognize their identity with modern socialistic formulas. Thus the magic phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat, of which it is doubtful whether anyone understands the precise meaning, was expressed at that date by the words, sovereignty of the people, and formed the text of Robespierre's gospel. The people, he wrote, must be the object of all political institutions. All other classes of the community were to be entirely unrepresented or preferably not to be allowed to exist. Everybody in the same class. Even the theory of wage slavery, later on proclaimed by Marx, was already current during the Reign of Terror. And on this point, we have the evidence of a contemporary. The plan of the Jacobins, wrote the Democrat, Fantine Desodoards, was to stir up the rich against the poor and the poor against the rich. To the later, they said, you have made a few sacrifices in favor of the revolution, but fear, not patriotism, was the motive. To the former, meaning to the poor, they said that the rich man has no bowels of compassion. Under the pretext of feeding the poor by providing them with work, he exercises over them a superiority, contrary to the views of nature and to republican principles. Liberty will always be precarious, 
as long as one part of the nation lives on wages from the other. In order to preserve its independence, it is necessary that everyone should be rich or that everyone should be poor. And that's from Des Odewards' Philosophical History of the French Revolution. It will be seen then that the whole theory of the class war, and even the very phrases by which it was to be promoted, as also the necessity for abolishing the relationship of capital and labor, which is usually associated with Marx, were ideas that existed 25 years before his birth. We cannot doubt that it is to Robespierre and St. Just that they must be mainly attributed. And here I have a slight contention with Nesta Webster. For my part, I would doubt this, as they seem to be the pattern of the authors of the Protocols, and the eventual fulfillment of the objectives of the Talmud, and Robespierre was only their tool. He preached these things, but I doubt that he originated them. He failed them. He failed the authors of the Protocols with his own pride and vanity, and temporarily derailed their plans for France. However, when they made their next attempt at the same scheme, in Russia, they made certain that Jews were in command of the leading positions, and not some untrustworthy goy. Because Robespierre does not seem to be a Jew. He could be, but he doesn't seem to be. Later in her book, In a different context, Webster portrayed a better understanding of Anacharsis Kluth's motives, and she said, and I've quoted this several times in this series, she said, if then communism or state socialism has been proved impracticable, impracticable, if moreover it is a system that no one who understands it can possibly want, who is to profit by establishing it? Sorel answered the question long ago. A few professors who imagine they invented socialism, and a few Dreyfusard financiers. In other words, the intellectuals who cherish the hope of being given official posts in the socialist state, which will give them an advantage over their fellow men, and a few Jewish financiers. Werner Sombat, summing up the system of the later, says that their aim was to, the Jewish financiers, their aim was to seize upon all commerce and all production. They had an overpowering desire to expand in every direction. The system of free trade was all part of this plan, and can be traced back as far as Anacharsis Klutz, who was doubtless considering the interests of his friends the Jews, when in his universal republic he advocated all peoples forming one nation, farming only one trade, all interests forming only one interest. It is necessary to see that state socialism may be merely the prelude to this scheme. And here, Monsieur Sorel and Copin Albincelli are curiously in accord. And that's what she said about Anacharsis Klutz at the end of her book, World Revolution. Continuing with Webster, where we interrupted her on page 41 of her book, Robespierre, 
as we know, definitely advocated the abolition of inheritance. The property of man, he said, must return after his death to the public domain of society. And although he was known to declare that equality of wealth is a chimera, in other words, something artificial, it was no doubt because he well knew that wealth can never be evenly distributed. And therefore, that the only way to achieve equality is by the process known today as the nationalization of all wealth and property. This, says the editor of his discourses, Monsieur Charles Vallée, is what the revolution means to him. It is to lead to a sort of communism, and it is here that he separates himself from his colleagues, that he isolates himself, and that resistance gathers around him. In 1840, the socialist Cabet, who had received the Robespierreiste tradition direct from the contemporary Buonarroti, expressed the same opinion. And Cabet said that all the proposals of the Committee of Public Safety during the last five months, the opinions of Bautzon and Buonarroti, both initiated into the profound views of Robespierre, both his admirers and both communists, give us the conviction that Robespierre and Saint-Just only blamed the untimely invocation of community by declared atheists, such as Klutz and Hubert, and that they themselves marched towards communism by paths that they judged more suited to success. And that's from the Popular History of the French Revolution by Cabet, written in 1840. Still more clinching evidence of Robespierre's real aim is, however, provided by the communist Babouf, who wrote these words in 1795. I thought Babouf lived a little later. I'm sure he... I'm pretty certain he did. He, Robespierre, thought that equality would only be a vain word as long as the owners of property were allowed to tyrannize over the great mass, and that in order to destroy their power and to take the mass of citizens out of their dependence, there was no way but to place all property in the hands of the government. And Babouf wrote that in On the System of Depopulation. And we will see that that idea also dates to at least as far back as the French Revolution. In the face of this statement, how can anyone deny that Robespierre was a state socialist in precisely the sense in which we understand the term today? That the state was of course to be represented by Robespierre himself and his chosen associates, it is needless to add. But what communist or group of communists have ever excluded the hypothesis of their own supremacy from their plan of a socialist state? The state is us, is the maxim of all such theorists. At one point, however, Robespierre differed from most of the members of the same school of thought who came after him, in that he showed himself a consistent socialist, for he had the singleness of aim, aided by the entire want of moral scruples, to push his theories to their logical conclusion. 
A labor extremist in this country recently described the modern Bolsheviks as socialists with the courage of their opinions. And the same description might be applied to Robespierre and Saint-Just. Thus Robespierre did not talk hypocritically of peaceful revolution. He knew that revolution is never peaceful, that in its very essence it implies onslaught met with resistance, a resistance that can only be overcome by an absolute disregard for human life. I will walk willingly with my feet in blood and tears, said his coadjutor St. Just, and this, whether he admits it or not, must be the maxim of every revolutionary socialist who believes that any methods are justifiable for the attainment of his end. The reign of terror was therefore not only the outcome of Illuminism, but also the logical result of socialistic doctrines. Thus, for example, the attacks on civilization carried out in the summer of 1793, the burning of the libraries and the destruction of treasures of art and literature were all part of the scheme of Weishaupt, but they were also perfectly consistent with the socialistic theory of the sovereignty of the people. For if one considers that in the least educated portion of the community, all wisdom and all virtue reside, the only logical thing to do is to burn the libraries and close down the schools. Of what avail is it to train the intellectual faculties of a child, if manual labor alone is to be held honorable? Of what use to civilize him, if in civilization is to be found the bane of mankind? It is idle in one breath to talk of the beauties of education and in the next to advocate the dictatorship of the proletariat and condemn all educated people as bourgeois. Citing Joseph de Maistre, his unpublished works, and he was quoting contemporary documents. And we see the same attitude towards education and the educated classes in America today. Of this strange contradiction, the Jacobins of France, like the Bolsheviks of Russia, at first were guilty. Magnificent schemes were propounded to the Convention for Normal Schools, or Central Schools, etc. Regiments of professors were to be commandeered for the instruction of youth. But all these schemes came to naught, for by the end of 1794, public education was said to be non-existent, owing obviously to the fact that, meanwhile, the emissaries of the Committee of Public Safety had busied themselves destroying books and pictures and persecuting all men of education. This campaign against the bourgeois found its principal support in Robespierre. It was he who first sounded the call to arms, which has since become the war cry of the social revolution. Internal dangers come from the bourgeois. In order to conquer the bourgeois, we must rouse the people. We must procure arms for them and make them angry. The natural consequence of this policy carried out against the mercantile bourgeois by the attacks on the manufacturing towns of France was, of course, to create vast unemployment. Already the destruction of the aristocracy had thrown numberless workers on the streets, so that by 1791 nearly all the hands that had ministered to the needs or caprices of the rich were idle, and thousands of hairdressers, gilders, 
bookbinders, tailors, embroiderers, and domestic servants wandered about Paris and collected in crowds to debate on the misery of their situation. The situation must always arise. If the leisured classes are suddenly destroyed, either by killing them off or by ruthless conscription of capital, socialists are fond of describing luxury workers as parasites. Obviously, then, if one destroys the animal on which the parasite lives, one must destroy the parasite too. It is possible that by a very slow and gradual redistribution of wealth, luxury workers might be more or less absorbed into the essential trades. But even this is very doubtful. At any rate, the attempt to abolish the luxury trades at a blow must inevitably lead to unemployment on a vast scale. For not only will the luxury workers themselves be idle, but since all classes are interdependent, many of the workers in the essential trades who depend on them for a livelihood will be idle likewise. And suddenly, dislocation of the industrial system must therefore mean national bankruptcy. Unless in the modern world you just keep printing all the money you need. This is precisely what happened in France, as even socialist writers admit. Melon, in his History of Socialism, illustrates by a picture of a scene in a Paris street the situation described by Michelet in the words, The revolution was to open a career to the peasant, but closed it to the workman. The first pricked up his ear at the decrees which placed the goods of the clergy on sale. The second, silent and somber, dismissed from his workshop, wandered about all day with folded arms. Now from here Nesta Webster elaborates her description of the plight of the common people of France during the Reign of Terror, and we have already discussed at length how, under the capitalist system, the people were even more greatly enslaved than they had ever been under feudalism. However, communism, setting itself as a savior, as the Jews boast here in the Protocols, only reduces all people to the lowest common denominator, and in turn enslaves them to a new and common master, which is the state. This description of Robespierre's aims in the French Revolution follows the same exact pattern which unfolded over a hundred years later during the Bolshevik Revolution, which was far more successful. Both revolutions are summed up in the next paragraph of the Protocols. We will present ourselves in the guise of saviors. This is from Protocol number 3. In the guise of saviors of the workers from this oppression when we suggest that they enter our army of socialists, anarchists, communists, to whom we always extend our help, under the guise of the rule of brotherhood demanded by the human solidarity of our social masonry. The aristocracy which benefited by the labor of the people by right was interested that the workers should be well-fed, healthy, and strong. Here we also have seen that the same Jacobins who had advanced the Jewish emancipation were the people behind Robespierre, Saint-Just, and their rise to power, and that they did not only promote equality, liberty, and fraternity for all Frenchmen, but for all citizens of the world of a universal one-world government, 
All of these things are objectives expressed by the authors of the protocols, who boast of destroying all history and culture, and replacing it with their own teachings of social studies, and their so-called program of the future, as we also cited last week, as they boast in protocol number 16. Another French Freemason was the physician, Dr. Joseph Ignace Guillotine. The device named for him had existed in Britain since the 14th century. However, he introduced it to France just in time for the Reign of Terror. From an article titled Executions, the Guillotine and the French Revolution by somebody, some academic named Michael R. Lynn, we read in part, Joseph Guillotine, a medical doctor and member of the Revolutionary National Assembly, championed the guillotine, proposing its use to the state in October of 1789. The new guillotine, it wasn't new, it was from the 1300s in England, but that's okay. The new guillotine was presented as a quick and rational means of execution, perhaps in answer to Enlightenment critics like Cesar Beccaria, who had argued against torture and capital punishment in his book on crime and punishment, written in 1764. The fear, continuing with Michael Lynn, the fear of beheading was always that the headsman might miss, thus requiring multiple swings of the axe before the deed was done. In fact, this fear had been so common that several centuries before Beccaria and Bolowin, the second wife of England's Henry VIII, had specifically requested that a French swordsman who was believed to be more skilled perform her beheading. I should probably pronounce that Boleyn. The guillotine purported to eliminate human error from the equation. It was also seen as egalitarian in that it could be used on nobles and commoners alike. With the guillotine, death could now be nearly instantaneous, with considerably less pomp and circumstance. Executions by guillotine were certainly well attended, but they lacked some of the extended spectacle of earlier execution rituals. Now the executioner simply pulled a cord, the blade fell, and it was all over, except perhaps for a display of the head to the crowd. However, what the guillotine lacked in overall drama, it certainly made up for in volume. But during the period of the French Revolution, and especially during the terror from 1793 and 94, when the state enacted martial law, use of the guillotine skyrocketed. Led by Maximilien Robespierre, the Committee on Public Safety enacted a series of decrees that established a system of terror, enforced by the state, in an effort to root out counter-revolutionaries and save the new republic from itself. Under this system, at least 40,000 people were killed, as many as 300,000 Frenchmen and women, one in 50 Frenchmen and women, were arrested during a 10-month period between September 1793 and July 1794. Included in these numbers were, of course, the deaths of Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. Although all social classes and professions were targeted, the death toll was especially high for both clergy and aristocrats.
The numbers of those killed and taken into custody were probably even higher, as the documented numbers don't include people killed by vigilantes and other self-proclaimed representatives of the Republic. And that's the end of our citation on the article concerning the guillotine. With poetic justice, of course, Robespierre ended up in the guillotine in 1794. The figures here seem to be accurate, but not because the men dispensing the reign of terror had any great degree of restraint. Continuing a little further along with Nesta Webster from page 46 of her book, after she discussed the failure of legislation to fix the French economy, she says, but towards the end of 1793, it became evident that there was no possibility of absorbing the the residuum created, for the attacks on the manufacturing towns of France had dealt the final blow to trade and the Republic found itself faced by hundreds of thousands of working men for whom it could not find employment. It was then that the Committee of Public Safety, anticipating the Malthusian theory, embarked on its fearful project, the system of depopulation. That this plan really existed is impossible to doubt in the face of overwhelming contemporary evidence. In The French Revolution, Nesta Webster's own work on the subject, I quoted this connection, I quoted in this connection the testimony of no less than 22 witnesses, all revolutionaries. And since then, I have found further corroboration of the fact in the letters of an Englishman named Redhead York, who traveled in France in 1802 and made particular inquiries on this question from the ally of Robespierre, the painter David. I asked him whether it was true that a project had been in contemplation to reduce the population of France to one-third of its present number. He answered that it had been seriously discussed and that Dubois Cronset, Edmund Louis Alexis Dubois Cronset, was the author, <coughs> the author of the population reduction. In another passage, York states, Monsieur de la Metherie assured me that during the time of the revolutionary tribunals, it was in serious contemplation to reduce the population of France to 14 million. Dubois Cronset was a very distinguished and enthusiastic partisan of this humane and philosophical policy. And that was written in a book titled France in 1802, The Letters of Redhead York, and published in English in 1906. It will be noticed that there is here a discrepancy in the exact figures the population of France at that period being 25 millions, the proposal to reduce it to one-third was to bring it down to approximately 8 millions. The difference then, because at one point Redhead York said 14 million, the difference then lies between the projects of reducing it by one-third or to one-third, issues which York evidently confused. But it was precisely on this point that the opinions of the terrorists differed. 
Thus we are told that de Antonel of the Revolutionary Tribunal advocated the former and more moderate policy, but that a reduction to eight millions, that is to say to one-third, was the figure generally agreed on by the leaders. The necessity for this lay not only in the fact that it was not even enough bread, money, or property to go around, but also, after the destruction of the aristocracy and bourgeois, not enough work. In the eyes of Maximilien Robespierre and his council, says Babouf, depopulation was indispensable because the calculation had been made that the French population was in excess of the resources of the soil and of the requirements of useful industry. That is to say that with us men jostled each other too much for each to be able to live at ease, that hands were too numerous for the execution of all works of essential utility. And this is the horrible conclusion, that since the superabundant population could only be amounted to so much, a portion of the sans-culottes, the commoners, must be sacrificed that this rubbish could be cleared up to a certain quantity. And that means... Must be ma- found, th- and that means must be found for doing it, for eliminating such a large portion of the commoners. Lester Webster goes on to say that the system of the terror was thus the answer to the problem of unemployment. Unemployment brought about on a vast scale by the destruction of the luxury trades. If the hecatombs, a hecatomb is an old Greek word, for the sacrifice of a hundred beasts, it appears quite often in the Iliad and the Odyssey. If the hecatombs carried out all over France never reached the huge proportions planned by the leaders, it was not for want of what they described as energy in the art of revolution. Night and day the members of the Committee of Public Safety sat around the green-covered table in the Tuileries with the map of France spread out before them. Tuileries, I'm probably butchering that word, I'm sorry. Pointing out towns and villages and calculating how many heads they must have in each department. Night and day the revolutionary tribunal passed on without judgment its never-ending stream of victims, whilst nearby the indefatigable Fouquier, Fouquier was the French prosecutor Antoine Quentin Fouquier de Tinville, while nearby the indefatigable Fouquier bent over his lists for tomorrow, and in the provinces, the councils, the proconsuls, I'm sorry, Carrière, Freyron, Colotte de Herbois, and Leban toiled unremittingly at the same Herculean task. In other words, they worked night and day, the prosecutors of France, revolutionary France, worked night and day to find people to persecute and thereby eliminate. Nesta Webster says that compared to the results, they had hoped to achieve the compared to the results they had hoped to achieve, the mortality was insignificant. Compared to the accounts given us by the conspiracy of history, it was terrific. The popular conception of the reign of terror as a procession of powdered heads going to the guillotine 
seem strangely naive when we read the actual records of the period. Thus, during the Great Terror in Paris, about 2,800 victims perished, and out of these, approximately 500 were of the aristocracy. 1,000 of the bourgeois and 1,000 of the working class. These estimates are not a surmise, since they can be proved by the actual register of the Revolutionary Tribunal, published both by Campardon and Wallon, also by the contemporary Prudhomme, and they are accepted as accurate by the Robespierreist historian Louis Blanc. According to Prudhomme, the total number of victims drowned, guillotined, or shot all over France amounted to 300,000, and of this number the nobles sacrificed were an almost negligible quantity, only about 3,000 in all. And we would think that 3,000 is significant, and that the number of commoners was probably elevated once this population reduction policy took, began to take place. Webster continues, and she says that at Nantes, 500 children of the people were killed in one butchery, and according to an English contemporary, 144 poor women who sewed shirts for the army were thrown into the river, citing Playfair's History of Jacobinism. Such was the period during which Carlyle dared to assure us that the 25 millions of France had never suffered less. Understatement. But this frightful mortality was not the only dreadful ruin, misery, starvation, were the feature of the terror. I'm sorry, I'm misreading this. The punctuation is horrible, I guess. But this frightful mortality was not the only dreadful Ruin, misery, starvation were the feature of the terror lot of all, but the band of tyrants who had seized the reins of power, and this state of affairs continued long after the reign of Robespierre ended. The conception of France lies rising like a phoenix from that great welter of blood and horror is as mythical as the allegory from which it was taken and has existed only in the minds of posterity. Not a single contemporary who lived through the revolution has ever pretended that it was anything but a ghastly failure. The conspiracy of history alone has created the myth. And we would say that the Jews and their control of media and popular perception created the myth of a wonderful French Revolution, which was indeed a ghastly failure, and the first holocaust of the so-called Age of Liberty. A hundred and twenty years later, in Russia, we see a repeat of the systematized terror, mass arrests, mass killings, prison massacres, the campaign against religion, the specific hatred for Christianity, the church closings and the massacres of the priests, the attacks on Christian education, the use of food supplies as a weapon against the people, and the destruction of the bourgeois.
Then, on the philosophical side of the Bolshevik Revolution, we see the imposition of a one-world humanist government, the eradication of racial distinctions and borders, rabid anti-patriotism and internationalism, economic collectivism, and state socialism. The Bolshevik Revolution was the French Revolution in every respect. There are other parallels between the French and Russian revolutions. The absolute monarch, King Louis XVI, was forced to accept the constitutional monarchy in 1791 and to share power with a legislature, and a year later a republic was declared and the king was deposed and eventually he and his wife were executed. In Russia, a moderate provisional government replaced the monarchy, and seven months later, that in turn was replaced with violence by the Bolsheviks. Executions of the king, his family, and the greater part of the nobility began shortly thereafter. Among the first things which Robespierre had done when he came to power was to take down the monuments of the state and replace them with monuments to his own gods. Of course, the Bolsheviks did that same thing, replacing the statues of Russian heroes with statues of themselves. That same thing is again happening here in America today on a much slower scale, and most of us are too ignorant to see the patterns. So the authors of the protocols are accurate in their boast that under our guidance the people have exterminated aristocracy, which was their natural protector and guardian. When we resume next week, we will continue from that point in the fulfillments which followed the publication of the protocols. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. (laughs) 